So would you hear now the reading of God's word this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I encourage you to follow along, uh, either in your Bible, it's also printed in your bulletin insert. Um, this is... This is what I would like to call an electric text, meaning that it's, if it doesn't shock you, then you're not touching it. Um, this is a living electric text, I would say. This is a memorizable text that if you, if you let this get deep into you, it'll change your life. So let that be your warning for today. How about that? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me one more time as we step into this text and learn a little bit more about it? Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our, high, our hearts and our minds and our eyes now to see and to hear and receive and to feel the electricity that's running through this passage, the spiritual life that is offered to us in a text like this. Holy Spirit, awaken our dead hearts now. Bring us to life. Show us the beauty of grace offered through Jesus now. In his name we pray, amen. All right, so we're, we've been going through the book of Ephesians the last few weeks, and so it brings us to Ephesians 2 this morning. Um, one of the things I'm excited about, about this text this morning, I mean, this is a classic gospel-centered text that gives you the core of Christianity in a 10-verse segment. So I pray that you, you, you see what Christianity really is today, what the way of Jesus really is today. But the, also the cool thing about this text today is that we're applying it in the context of not just what it means for you, but how do you love the city of Salem through a text like this? How do, you, how do you engage with your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers or your classmates through what this text is telling us about the reality of who God is? So how do we love this city from a frame of reference of the text like this? So that's, that's where this text really got fun for me this week because I, again, as a preacher or a pastor or a Christian, I've, I'm familiar with this text and it's, 
It's easy to preach because it's the core of Christianity. But it was fun for me to think about how does this actually impact how I love my neighbor? And so I I pray that you see and experience that in some way today as well. So again, this is written from the Apostle Paul to a church in the ancient city of Ephesus years ago that we learned about a couple of weeks ago. It's very similar to the city of Salem. It was a city that practiced the magic arts. It was a city that worshiped foreign idols. It was a city that had many diverse people. It was a city of influence. And yet it was also a city where many people were coming to put their faith in Jesus. And it was asking them to count the cost of following him in a in a non-Christian setting, which is very similar to the setting we find ourselves in. And so what this text introduces us to is the theme of grace. And that's what I'm going to be preaching on. That's the theme of, of the sermon is grace. Grace is the core of Christianity to the point where there's many good churches, even in this area, that have grace as their name. There's a church in Marblehead called Grace Community Church that we love to partner with when we can. We do an Easter sunrise service with them on Easter each year, the last few years. And they they think so much of grace that they name their church Grace. Or there's a large influential church in the area called Grace Chapel, which maybe you're familiar with. And they, they think so much of grace that they name their church Grace. Because when you understand grace, you understand the heart of Christianity, the core of it. There's no other religion or worldview, or faith system, or spirituality that has anything like the Christian understanding of grace. Like, you're not going to go find a Muslim mosque called Grace Mosque. You're just not going to find it. You're not going to go find a Buddhist temple called the Grace Buddhist Temple. It's just not, it's not the core of what they emphasize. It is the core of the Christian gospel. Grace is, I'll just try to give you an understanding of it right from the beginning. It's a beautiful, free, undeserved gift of love that's offered to you with no strings attached. It's life itself given to you without anything you have to do for it. It's just offered to you freely. I have a friend of mine uh, named Mike Penza, who I went to seminary with and, uh, He's he's now a pastor out in Illinois. And he, believe it or not, he's a bigger nerd than I am. He reads more than I do. I know I'm a nerd, but he reads more than I do. And he, he he has a blog that he does from time to time where he just talks about all the books he's reading, all the things he's learning. And two days ago, he posted on Facebook. He said, this is what I've learned about grace this year. And he, picture, he posted a picture of a book, a stack of books this high of all the books he's read about grace. And he said, here's what I've learned. Here's like 11 things. And I was very grateful because I'm about to preach this sermon. So I just kind of took some things. But I, I want to read just one snippet of what he wrote. He said, a primary difference between normal worldly love and biblical grace is the unfittedness of the recipient. Biblical grace is like normal love on steroids. Usually, love is expressed between two equal partners, such as a husband and a wife, parents and children. But the biblical concept of grace is different than that. According to the Bible, we are given God's gift of grace without regard to our capacity or to our worth. It comes free of charge, no strings attached, on the house, 
Jerry Bridges defines grace as the love of God shown to the unlovely. In this sense, God's grace towards us is unconditioned. Grace establishes what is absent and creates something special from nothing. It lifts those who are low. I just thank you, Mike, for putting that picture into our minds of that's just an introduction to what grace is for us. It's totally different than a worldly aspect of love. It's like, it's like love that's mentioned in the mainstream on steroids. That's what he said. It's just a, it's the true and better version of what the world would call love. Undeserved, unconditional love. Grace. So what does this look like then to love a city out of grace? What does that look like? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use three mathematical terms for you just to kind of give you another way to think about it. To love a city like this, like Salem, out of grace, I think it means you need to subtract something, you need to add something, and then you need to multiply something. Can you tell that I have a, th- a third grade daughter right now? We've been doing a lot of math homework in our home. Adding... I'm sorry, subtracting, adding, multiplying. That's what we're going to do for our three points. So first, to love a city out of grace means that we need to subtract something from us. And if you look at verses one through three, I think it's pretty obvious that what all of us need to subtract out of our life, if we're going to love people out of, a, out of the grace of God, what we need to subtract out of our life is arrogance or boasting, or pride, whatever word best fits for you. And here's what I mean. When you look at verses one through three, it basically acknowledges that all of us as humans are on the same playing field. We are on equal spiritual footing. We are on a radically equal playing field. So for instance, now let's just use this image of a playing field, for instance. Many of you may be watching football this time of year because it's the playoffs and the Super Bowl is coming up. We've got a couple of games this afternoon you may have to watch um, because what else would you do on a Sunday afternoon but watch NFL football? That's just what Americans do, apparently. Um, But if you were to turn on a game this afternoon, for instance, and watch these games, you'll see two teams playing each other that are different They have different uniforms, different skill level, different types of players, but they're competing for a championship today. The winner goes to the Super Bowl. Yeah, we got some some, uh, Ravens fans in the house here. Um, But here's the thing about football and about every game. There's a favorite. There's someone who's probably likely to win if, if they play their best. Someone who has the more talent, the better coaches, whatever. But when, but when the game starts, the playing field is even. They're playing on the same patch of grass. They're using the same football. They're playing in the same weather conditions. They have an equal chance to win that day because sometimes unexpected things happen, right? Sometimes the team that's not favored is going to win. Now, spiritually speaking, what Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is it shows us that though we are very different as humans, Some of us are rich, some of us are poor, some of us are powerful, some of us are not powerful, some of us are smart, some of us are not as smart. I mean, we have all these differences. Spiritually speaking, we are on the same level playing field. Now, you may say right away, well, the counterpoint would be, what about people that are born into much tougher situations? What about people that 
you know, have a really tough upbringing or experienced a lot more brokenness than others or people who are born with no access to the Bible or to the church. Yes, like there's different circumstances we have, but the underlying problem or difficulty or issue that we all have is we share the sin problem in common. We share sin in common together. That's what levels the playing field. And so the presence of this debilitating death reality of sin, you know, Marcos here modeled death for us during the children's sermon. Like that's our, that's our spiritual reality because of sin. That is, that is where we all find ourselves. The playing field is level spiritually for us. Sin is anything that is counter to God's ways. Anything that is counter to the true way that God designed the world to be. And so you and I have all experienced a world that is apart from God's beautiful way because sin is just part of our ecosystem now. Now, I've I've used this illustration in the past before, but the best person I know to give a definition of sin is a mother because a mother spends time with children who have to go through the process of learning what it means to be disobedient. And so I'll give you a, a definition of sin by a somewhat famous mother. Her name is Susanna, and she's the mother of um, someone named John Wesley, who was a famous Methodist preacher. And this is her definition of sin. Again, she's the mother of John Wesley, who became a, a leader of a movement of Christians later in life. But she says this, whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience." obscures your sense of God or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in and of itself. Now, that's kind of a wordy definition, but she's basically saying like anything that is separating you from God, anything that's that's taking away your desire to pursue spiritual things or a beautiful, good way of life in the way that God intended. Anything that does that is sin. And all of us have experienced that. All of us have that in us. And now, so what what that means for us, why we need to subtract arrogance from our life is that means why would we ever look down on someone else if all of us share that in common? If all of us are sinners which is, this is core to Christianity. Like Christianity has to start with the foundation premise that all of us are sinners and we fall short of living up to God's ways. If we agree to that, then that means none of us can look down on one another. None of us, none of us is below one another either. So first, if none of us is above one another, that means none of our goodness is too great to elevate us above someone else. You may be the kindest, goodest, most gentle person, and that, that still is not, an, an, that's not enough for you to elevate above someone else. It's not enough to save yourself from your soul. It's not even your fault that you can't save yourself. Like, I... That that may sound like the most anti-American thing ever. Like you can't save yourself. You can't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. But just that's not a bad thing about you. That's just the reality. You cannot save your own soul. 
And so there's never an excuse to be arrogant or proud because of how good you are in and of yourself. It does, in and of yourself, it doesn't mean much to be good, to be a nice person. We'll, get, we'll come back to goodness in just a moment. But what it also means is that if you think of yourself as lower than someone else, you should never think that either. So if you think of yourself as worse off or struggling more or below someone else, no sin is too great to make you descend below another human. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter what you're struggling or messing up in now, no matter what dumb thing you'll do in the future, that's not enough to place you below another human. You are no worse off in your soul than another human, another sinful human. Our lowness is equal. Sin is sin. And that's because, as it says in uh, verses 2 and 3, we all follow the course of this world. The course of this world sets us on that same sinful, broken trajectory. We engage in the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind, and we're all like the rest of mankind, it says. Don't you see that? Like, it's basically saying, like, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And I, th- this may sound like the worst possible news to you, but I promise it's the best possible news. I promise it's the best possible news. But what it requires of, of a church, what it requires of a Christian right away, is that you need to subtract any boasting, subtract any arrogance, subtract any I'm better or I'm, I'm more well off because a Christian should know more than anybody else. A Christian should know more than anybody else that they are, they are less deserving than anybody, that they've received everything by grace. As verses one and two said, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. It doesn't say you were dying in your trespasses. It doesn't say you were struggling in your trespasses. It says you were dead in your trespasses. So like the front of the bulletin says, like we have to start here because it says, this is a quote by a man named John Gerstner. It says, to receive God's grace, the main thing you need is what? The main thing you need is need. The main thing you need is nothing. But it says, but not many people have need. Not many people have nothing. Not many people are willing to admit that they have a grand need. So no boasting, no boasting allowed. That's what the Christian church is about. Verse nine says, not to result of works so that no one may boast. We we shouldn't have any self-exalting language. We shouldn't talk down on other people. We shouldn't, we should, on the counter, we should descend to that place and speak as equals to one another. Now, that's the subtraction part. Now, what do we add? What do Christians add to a city? What can Christians add to people around us in a way that we can love them with the grace of Jesus? The one thing we can add is the story of what God has done for all of us. So we subtract the boasting, put that away, and we add in the story of what God has done, not just for you individually, not just your individual story, but as Ephesians would say, the story of what God has done for every single one of us. So just right off the bat, what I want to show about verses 1 through 10 is that anytime you see uh, people mentioned in this passage, it's plural. It's we. It's us. 
It's you with a all after it, you all. The all doesn't come through in the English translation here, but if you look at the original Greek language, it's a plural, you all. And so what this is saying is like, this is actually not about individuals. This is about a community. God is in the process of redeeming all people, all humanity. And so there's a story by which he has done that. And that's what he wants us to add to those around us. What God has done, he has done for all of us at once. On the cross, when Jesus died on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, he died for the sins of the whole world. Every single one of us. The sins of the whole world were laid on Jesus at the cross so that every person would equally have the same chance to respond in faith to what he's offered to us. And again, so that's why we don't boast because all of us have that same opportunity and people just need to hear the story. People need to hear the story that's offered to them. And this is for you too today. Like, again, it takes spiritual eyes and spiritual hearts to hear the story and to have it click for you. So the story is that the God who created everything has given up his life so that you could be forgiven. So you could be free. So you don't have to be condemned by your sin anymore. You don't have to walk in the course of this world anymore. And that there's a future that is brighter for you than you can ever imagine. It's, a, it's not simply an individual response to us, but it's a collective response for a whole community. This is for the good deeds person who doesn't see their need for a savior at all. This is, this is an invitation to them, to those who are rich, to those who are powerful. This is an invitation to you. This is to those who are maybe the worst, most difficult. They've done awful things in their life and who see their brokenness and sin and don't think that there's anyone that could ever forgive them for the things that they've done, whether people know it or not. This is an invitation for that person too. The offer is the same for all. The story of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is a story of addition. It's a story of God adding something to your life that you couldn't get on your own, but has to be given to you from the outside. What is he adding to us? In verse five, it says, he has made us alive together with Christ, meaning that he has given us life itself. He's given us the addition of life itself. In verse six, it says, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him. He's giving us our life back. Some people around us don't, deep in their heart, they don't think that that is still an option for them. They think that they missed their chance. They think that the boat left, left the harbor and that they're just gonna have to make the most of whatever they're left with now. But guess what? That ship of grace always comes back. There's always a chance to get on that ship and to sail off to God's beautiful future and promised hope for us. I think even deeper than, than what he's given to us, I think it's, it's even more important maybe for us to understand why he's done that for us at all. Why did God go to such great lengths to add something to us? And that's where verse four just jumps off the page. So verses one through three tell us of our tough, sinful position. But verse four 
has that great reversal, one of the greatest reversals in, in any text of the Bible. It says, but God, but God, God changes the story right there. But God, instead of leaving you this way, but God stepped into your story. And what did he do? It says, because he was rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he's loved us. Like, again, I know you've heard this, but why does God do all that? Why does God want to add something to your life? Because he loves you more than you can ever even express or feel or know. He loves you because of his great love with which he has loved you. According to his great mercy, God's story is a story of love that crashes into your story, into your brokenness, into your mess, pursues you continually to draw you back into himself. Why? So that in verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you, let me just, let me put that in my terms. So that he could just show you more and more and more and more and more and more how great he is to you. So that the minute you put your faith in him, you just get to experience it on an immeasurable level as the days go by. So that you never stay the same, but you just grow deeper and deeper and deeper into seeing the great love of God for you and how, how awesome he's been to you to step in and to intercede in your life, to change the course of your life from following the course of this world to having hope and to being forgiven and to having a purpose beyond what you can ever imagine. And again, it's, it's not because we deserve it. It's not because we do anything to add to it. It's all grace, not, a, not, not because of works, but because of his great love for us. I just, I, I say this from time to time, um, but I think it's so important. Again, what, what the Christian gospel offers us is not a ladder. The Christian gospel does not give us a ladder to say, okay, here's your ladder. Now, as the days go by, just climb that ladder. And as long as you're good, the ladder will, you'll just keep being able to climb it. And eventually you'll get to heaven and you'll get it, you'll make it. Like that's not what Christianity offers. Christianity says there's no ladder. There's no stairway to heaven. Sorry, Metallica. There's no stairway to heaven. It doesn't offer us that. What Christianity offers us is for us to stay right here and for Jesus to come to us. He descends to us. He meets us in our lowest place. You know, there's the, the lyric of a song we sing in this church from time to time. It says this, as rivers long to reach the lowest place, his grace shall flow to me forever. You notice that with all the rain we've gotten recently, where does the water flow? To the lowest place on your property, which is for me, my garage, over and over. But for, for the grace of God, that means the grace of God flows to us in our lowest place, not in our highest place. So if we climb the ladder, what do we miss? The grace of God. If we stay in our lowest place and say, God, save me, a sinner, that's where the grace of God meets you. And he elevates you and sits you next to him in the heavenly places. That's, that's the gospel. And so what are you asked to do? The only thing you're asked to do is say yes. And that's what faith is. Faith is just sticking out your hands and saying yes. Okay, thank you. I will, I will receive that. Faith is saying yes to God by his grace. 
Let me just give you a couple of, a couple of other people who describe faith this way. William Bridge says, faith is the opening up of a clenched hand. The opening up of a clenched hand. Frederick Beekner says this way. He says, the grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but because you are, but you are because the party would not have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you that I created the universe. I love you. But there's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Maybe by being able to reach out and take it, it is a gift too. Another man, Paul Altheus, says, The believing heart holds fast to Christ just as the setting of a ring grasps the jewel. We have Christ in faith. Or here's one more. This one's by Tim Keller. And this is to assure us that it's not the basis of our strength that saves us or the, or the basis or the strength of our faith that saves us. But Tim Keller says this. He says, imagine you're falling off a cliff. It's a good place to start. If you're falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. You need a strong branch to save you when you're falling off a cliff. So he says, salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith, which is Jesus. Jesus is the strong branch that if you're falling off a cliff and you grab onto that branch, it will hold you up. He will hold you fast. It's not your faith that has to be strong in that moment. It's the object of your faith that's holding you up. That's all we're asked to do, to grab the thing that is the strongest in the whole world, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so finally, the last point that I'll make, we've talked about subtraction and addition. What's the last mathematical phrase here? Multiplication. This is the part that maybe is harder for some of us. But how do we love a city? We just multiply everything we just said. We multiply it out to the people around us. Your individual life, your individual life matters so much to God. So much to where Paul can't finish this passage without mentioning how special you are to God individually. So verse 10, he says this, we are his workmanship. His workmanship. I'll give you a couple other words that you could replace with workmanship here. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's beautiful poem that he is writing in the world. You are God's beautiful creation. You are his his perfect piece of art. God created you uniquely, just like Michelangelo could, could craft an amazing painting that will bless the world for centuries. God made you to bless the world in a beautiful way. And so what that means is that how God made you as an image bearer of him, very good, with a life of great worth and capacity and identity that is unique in the world, God can use you to multiply his grace and his goodness in a way that no one else can. And so what does it say here? He said, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are simply asked to multiply Jesus and his grace and his goodness to everyone around us in the world, living like Jesus did, reflecting and modeling his life as we've been taught. We are his body, the hands and feet of Jesus walking around in the world. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus was one man who did a lot of amazing things. Obviously, he, he died on the cross, which no one else could do. But when he went back to heaven and he multiplied now his, his grace to us, he's given his grace to us, what that did was it multiplied himself into you and I, into the church. We are the body of Christ is what it says. So that now what one person used to do for those 33 years of his life on earth, now it's multiplied through billions of people throughout history who are walking around as image bearers and bearers of the grace of Jesus. So that we get to multiply grace to the whole world. It's just an amazing strategy that God did. He gave us, he gave us, our, us ourselves back so that we could do good works, that we should walk in them, so that everybody could receive the message of the good news of the gospel. And so it's not just to do good, it's not just to serve well, so we, but we should do those things as well, but it's an overflow of what God has done for us so that people can see Jesus more than anything else. And so that's what it means to love out of the grace of God. I mean, let me just finish with a story. Um, this is by the, by the biographer David McCullough, who's kind of famous for writing biographies about famous people like presidents and things. He writes really long um, award-winning biographies. But he, <laughs> I thought this was a funny, funny little story. He, he used to keep a sign over his desk that just said this, look at your fish. That's what the sign says. Look at your fish. It's sitting above this great writer's desk. So this is what the story says. It says, the saying helped him to win a Pulitzer Prize. The story was inspired by a Harvard teacher who used to plop a fish on the table on the first day of class and ask his students to write about it. So this professor puts a fish on the desk and says, write about it. The students would usually respond with something like, what do you mean? It's a fish. We don't need to write about a fish. And the teacher would simply say, look again. So the students were encouraged to look and to look and to look until they started to see details that they had been previously missing. The texture of the fins would come to life, then the color of the scales. Then by the end of the semester, the students would see how simple a fish was. In fact, it's wonderfully complex. McCullough would then keep a reminder above his desk because writers are professional observationalists at heart. They live in search of ideas that other people would miss because they don't look close enough. As it says, insight doesn't necessarily come from novelty. Sometimes it comes from staring at an object for an impossibly long time until you see something maybe you've always glanced over. Look at your fish. And so this is simply us again today saying, look at, look at the grace of God once again. Take a look at what God has done for us. For those of us who are believers, look at it again and see things maybe you've missed before. Or maybe this is your first time looking at the fish today. Maybe this is your first time seeing the grace of God. Take a hard look and see if you can find anything else in the world that would substitute for what God has done for us 
in this way. N.T. Wright says, look hard at Jesus, especially as he goes to his death, and you'll discover more about God than you could ever have guessed from studying the infinite shining heavens or the moral law within your own conscience. I'll finish with this one. A man once came up to a, a preacher after a sermon and said that he had finally obtained peace. The famous preacher asked how, and the man said, All this time I've been trying to enter by the saint's door. But while you were preaching, I finally saw my mistake and entered in at the sinner's door. And that's what the grace of God offers to each of us. So I'll stop there. Um, Let's close in prayer. And then we're going to sing Amazing Grace together to finish our service. Again, just the beauty of our acapella voices. Let me close us in a word of prayer, and then we'll stand and sing Amazing Grace together. Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the grace with which you have loved us. I pray that uh, something from today would really get into our hearts, make us to think, help us to look at the grace of God more deeply and maybe freshly, more freshly than before. Would you awaken our our spiritual hearts now? If they were dead, bring us to life. If they were dormant, wake us up. If something today spurred us how we should love our neighbors, help us to do it tomorrow, right away. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation he's given to us by grace. Help us now to sing uh, with all of our might now as we sing a beautiful song for you as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.